Well, good morning again. I hope that you have had a, a good week. <clears throat> I know there's still a lot of different sicknesses going around, and I'm sure mixing with family this week wasn't always the best for that, but just pray that you get some rest, and for those that weren't able to join us today as well, um, I know that there's still a few that are dealing with that. But this morning, we come to celebrate the first week of Advent already. It's kind of crazy how fast the years go by, um, but you know, as we come this morning, I'm not sure if you get into the Christmas spirit this early. I mean, there might be some of you that have already had your Christmas tree up since Halloween. There's some that put it up this weekend. Maybe you're one of those that wait until the week before, and then you decorate a little bit. Um, but you know, it, it's a time, it's a season that we just change in how we do some things. You know, we start watching some of those Hallmark movies, we listen to Christmas music, we, we bake different types of desserts, and we have different parties, and of course we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a wonderful season, it's full of joy, it's full of, of glad tidings. And over the next few weeks, our messages are going to be dedicated to the build-up of Christmas Day, again, which is on a Sunday, and as Beth mentioned, we're not going to have Sunday school that day, um, so just be able to spend a little bit of time with family in the morning, and then come and worship the birth of our Savior on a Sunday. It's always a, a unique thing that happens every so often. But you know, I'm excited to get into this season, because I've got a few different passages selected through the Advent messages that I haven't preached on before, ones that the Lord has shown me um, that I'm really excited about. And today we're going to talk about the voice in the wilderness from Isaiah 40. Um, you, we might recognize that phrase in dealing with John the Baptist, and we read that for the call to worship this morning in Luke 3. Um, but we're going to back up this morning and we're going to talk some of that context, some of the backstory of the prophecy that's given for John the Baptist. And we're going to discuss um, the voice in the wilderness and what God is telling his people in the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Isaiah 40 and we'll read just the first 11 verses this morning. So beginning in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. 
Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Father, as we go to your word this morning, we look at your prophecies. I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would allow us to meditate deeply on the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the book of Isaiah, you know, we've been spending a lot of time in the New Testament lately, so kind of shifting gears in our mental focus to the book of, the, of Prophets. Um, Being in the Old Testament, there's a difference in how we understand things. And within Isaiah, within this narrative, um, we see a shift in the dialogue, a shift that is towards hope for an exiled people. See, the first thing I want us to, to understand when we're studying this type of passage is the direct context of the people of Isaiah, those that are, that he is speaking to, the people of God who have been rebellious and they are currently in exile. Um, They are being punished for their sins for not following God, and they've been conquered, they've been taken away, they've been separated, their cities have been destroyed and laid flat. Many of them have died in this process. Uh, They've been conquered by different nations. And it's here in chapter 40 that we see a shift that happens. You know, in the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is pronouncing all of these woes. He's talking about their punishment. He's talking about their exile. And in 40, we have this shift to show the depth of God's love for his people, even through their times of judgment. And he starts off by saying, comfort. Comfort my people. So since it's repeated, it's emphasized. We want to take notice of that that this is going to be a new setting, a new message for his people. It's a new chapter, a new birth, something that is for a future history that he is referencing. Again, the first 39 chapters have shown the discipline of the Father. And then after this time of discipline comes this tender gentleness that God is speaking towards his people, restoring this relationship of how I am your God and you are my people restoring it to the way that it's supposed to be. But the people were rebellious, they were adulterous, and thus they were being disciplined, they were being judged. And in chapter 40, the tone of the message of Isaiah as a whole changes. The writing goes from judgment and discipline to the pervasiveness of the love of God, the hope that they will have and find in him if they were to follow him. And God is, he's saying here in these opening couple of verses that Israel's punishment is, is done. It's been paid for. She has paid double the portion uh, in terms of judgment, double for their sins that they have committed. Therefore, he says, speak tenderly to her. You know, when I think of discipline and I think of my own parenting style and how many times when we're disciplining, are we disciplining in a tender voice versus losing our patience and disciplining in anger and yelling. You know, when we read all of the parenting books, they tell you not to discipline in anger. 
I think part of that reason is, is because at the back end of that discipline then, if you're not disciplining in anger, you're able to come in with a tender voice to show comfort. You know, most times when I'm disciplining in anger, I'm still fuming after it's done. And then it's like, okay, I have to go ask for forgiveness because I blew up again and that's not how I'm supposed to parent. That's not how I'm supposed to discipline. So we see the model that is set before for us here and the way that God handles his people. And Isaiah is charged to go to the people who are left in the exile to speak tenderly to them, to speak this message of hope. But it's going to be difficult. Again, the, these people are utterly ruined. They have been destroyed. But it's a message that will break through the despair that they might feel. You know, I liken this imagery to the time period before we were saved. A time period when we are in our own exile, so to speak. When we are in utter despair, when we are in hopelessness. And then the message of hope of the gospel comes through and breaks through that despair to bring us comfort, to bring us understanding and into the fold. Where we might seem hopeless, the light of eternity breaks through. And then the next three verses, he gives this message of hope to the people where we see this voice crying out. This is probably an angel talking to Isaiah, heralding this message for him. And this is what it says. Let's look at verses three through five again. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's a lot in there, and again, we, that was what was quoted in Luke 3 that we read this morning, uh, attributing it to John the Baptist. But looking at the direct context, we see that first word there about wilderness and understanding what wilderness means. If you recall, when we went through the Exodus journey, and we discussed that in Sunday school, you know, wilderness was representative of sin. It was representative of barrenness, of godlessness. That is the picture that is there. Um, that's the cultural understanding. So this message of wilderness can also, for the people of God, be a callback to them for the Exodus journey, how they were led through the wilderness by God, how God took them from the wilderness into the promised land, how they placed their hope and their trust in him then, now that they're in exile, their own form of wilderness, he is going to be leading them back to the straight and narrow. You think of wilderness, like I said before, in terms of John the Baptist and his mission to make straight the paths for the Lord with his ministry happening out in the wilderness. Again, paving the way for the ministry of Christ and of course Christ's ministry being that narrow path for he is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, we can catch all of this Im imagery, all of this understanding from this one term, from that phrase of being out in the wilderness and making straight the paths. You know, you, you see all this talk also about lowering the mountains, raising the valleys. You know, it, it would be customary in these cultures to make a great big deal of a procession. You know, so when it's level path, you think about you think about the different types of processions that are seen in the Bible. 
You know, I think of David and the ark as he is returning, people lining the streets, praising, worshiping God because the presence of God is being brought into Jerusalem. I think of Jesus coming into Jerusalem uh, just before the Passover as he is welcomed that way. You know, it was a very big cultural thing in how you were um, presenting someone. It was a form of worship, whether that was an idol, whether that was something dignified, or whether that was for an important, important person. You know, in our own cultures, it'd be similar to rolling out the red carpet for someone. Whether that's a celebrity or a famous person, we, we make a very distinct path for that person to walk on. We revere what's going on. So this is the imagery, again, that is going on in, in this procession. And these couple of verses build up to verse 5 where it shows the reason for making the paths straight. And that is because the coming of the Lord will be manifested. His glory will be revealed for everyone to see. And this is where the excitement around this prophecy is. Right? The glory of the Lord will be manifested. Now, as you, as you go through life, as you have prayers, as you pray for God to show up in big ways in your life, what does that look like? You know, when you're asking God for him to show up in your life, how do you envision that he shows up? Do you envision a pillar of cloud or fire? Maybe a soft breeze or a small, still voice? Do you envision him coming on clouds for his return? Or do you just envision an answered prayer? The glory of the Lord will be manifest. It will be revealed for all to see. I don't think we meditate on that enough and what that would look like. You know, here in our passage, it is God acting on behalf of his people. He would save them from exile. He would return them to Israel. He would return them to the promised land. That would be the immediate context, him liberating his people to save them. The other nations would take notice that God is saving his people. Then you have the view of how we understand it today in terms of the Advent season with the coming Messiah and the future people from this period of time. They would see the glory of the Lord shining all around him. You know, with the angels up in the sky and the host of angels singing praises to God, the star in the sky and the person of Jesus, the glory of God here on earth. And then finally, we understand this manifested glory in the second coming of Jesus when he returns for his church. All three of these views can be in the understanding of this because it is consistent with how God shows up through Scripture. And then the last line there in verse 5, um, as he says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's just added emphasis. It has that same force of thus saith the Lord or truly, truly I say to you, the lines that Jesus uses. It's a veracity uh, of truth that must be acknowledged, that the word of God must be adhered to, that it is absolutely true. And you know, you look at what is to be said to these people. And if you're like me, you have to think there's got to be some apprehension among the crowds. There has to be some tentative feelings about what they've been going through. You know, they've been in exile for years. They've gone through wars. They've seen their loved ones die. 
to be able to hear words of comfort in this time. This time that they're experiencing judgment. You know, I mentioned this thought because that's an argument that I hear against God from our culture. You know, as people struggle with loss of any form, they deny God's existence because of it. I mean, if God was real, then my child would still be here. If God was real, then this wouldn't have happened. And they reject any type of, co- of comfort because they feel like they're constantly being judged. It's a type of thought that a lot of our society deals with and struggles with. And I think to understand through that, we have to understand how time plays a role here. See, the Israelite people who are living through this judgment in the present time are being judged because of hundreds of years of rebellion. And they're going through this long period of exile. So there are generational things going on where they can get this feeling of unfairness. And it might not seem clear of what's actually going on. And they're not able to see what is to come. See, this message is coming from God who is outside of time. He doesn't have to to go in a linear fashion the way that we think it is. And for us, it's easy to look back in our time, to read our Bibles in the Old Testament, to connect the dots in the New Testament, and see Jesus fulfilling the prophecies and say, yep, 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 it's easy. You should just believe. What's wrong with you? It's so simple. How could you not put your trust in God? And this is where the beauty of multiple views can come into play. As you look at it for the Israelites there, the future time for Jesus, and then even our time today. Because as we can easily look to the past and know what the truth is, how firmly do we hold on to that in our present? When we face our own exile-like moments, our own times of judgment perhaps, our own trials, how firmly do we hold on to the promise of the Lord's return? or the charge and the call to make straight the paths of the Lord among the lost around us? How often do we hear the voice in the wilderness? How often do the circumstances that we face dictate how we respond, how we present ourselves to the world around us? You know, the trials that we face, they're very real. They're right in our face, just as they are with everyone else. Now the difference would be that we're not necessarily under a promised judgment from the Lord as the Israelites were, but we still face different trials. We're still called to maintain our faith in the Lord to see us through these trials. Now this seeing through doesn't mean that there's a fairy tale happy ending where we get everything exactly the way that we want it to be because we are not God. You know, his glory had been revealed in the past through the Israelites in the covenant in the Exodus journey, and his promises have been true. He promises that his glory would be revealed. And it was revealed as the Israelites returned. It was revealed through his son Jesus, and it will be revealed through his son Jesus again as he comes back the second time. See, our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. And it's based on what the word of God promises. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What an awesome hope and promise that we have. And if there's times that you struggle in your faith, when you struggle with assurance, rest on those verses. Rest that it is guaranteed through the spirit that dwells in us. It is rest on what God's word says. But again, sometimes putting our complete hope and trust is not always easy. And as we face these trials, or as there's trials going along around for those that are around us, sometimes we can be at a loss for words. I mean, do you ever find yourself at a loss for words of how to speak to somebody who is going through something difficult? What to say to them for encouragement? Searching your mind for something to say to guide them, to direct them, to give them hope, inspiration, guidance, direction, anything? You know, most of us won't be in the role to where we're going to publicly speak to bring hope to a group of people. But I think we do this a lot on a personal and individual level. Where we have these opportunities as we, people face these types of crises to, to instill hope in their life. And maybe through those times you've relied on that famous promise of Lord, you're just going to give me the words to say when I don't know what to say. Your spirit's going to come through. It's reassuring, but terrifying. Because as you step into that mess with people, you don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know the rawness of those uncertain moments. Having the words to say. Just some different examples. It could be as simple as kids asking about the birds and the bees having that conversation. It could be something about comforting somebody through a time of loss, cheering them up after a breakup, inspiring them after they maybe lose a job, face a financial crisis, hear a new diagnosis. You know, as you go through those moments, it seems everything that you know disappears and you're grasping for straws, trying to find something stable, trying to find something that can stop this, this boat of life that you're, rock, that you're on from rocking. The only thing that we can share with them that is of any value or any worth is the word of God. It is Christ. And this next section, in this next section, it's exactly what happens this same voice cries out from above, and he says, cry. It means call out, proclaim, announce. And Isaiah asks, what do I cry? You know, I, as I put myself in his situation, after 39 chapters, years of woes and judgment, all right, Lord, what do I say to this people that has lost everything? What do I say to these people to bring them hope, to say that everything's gonna be okay now. I'm reminded of Job and his friends who for seven days just sit with him. What do you say to a man that's that broken? But the voice says cry, proclaim, 
Proclaim that which only you can proclaim, and that is the word of God. And he gives this illustration that's repeated in 1 Peter 1 and and James 1 about the grass. How people are like grass, that they wither and they fade, and it is only the word of the Lord that will stand. The people, like grass, meaning they cannot withstand the breath or the spirit of God. Reminds me of the conversation that Moses has with God in Exodus 33, where Moses is like, Lord, I want to see your face. I want to see your fullness. God's like, no, you can't. Otherwise, you would die. Kind of shows you where we stand as people before the Lord, that we don't stand before the Lord. It is only through the blood of Christ that we're able to enter the throne room of God and simply cry out praises to him using his own words to pray back to him. And we cry out these words in humility because we understand it's not us, but it is the blood of Christ. Now being on this side of the cross, things are a little bit different for us than the Israelites in the Old Testament. But the reverence that is due to God because of his holiness, because of his glory, has not changed. Paul in 2 Corinthians again, but this time in chapter 2, I think has a picture of this passage a little bit. In chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, makes straight the paths, he is the narrow way, and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but men of sincerity. As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. See, as believers, we are Christ's ambassadors and everything related to the kingdom is done in Christ, through him, because we are in him. In your theology, the importance of prepositions and where they go matter a lot. And it's an interesting study, but it's something, again, I think that we need to meditate on. See, things are not to be done in our own power or for our own gain because we are like the grass and the flowers of the field here today and gone tomorrow. We come with the gospel message to those around us because that is the only thing that we can share of value, the word of God, the person of Jesus. That is what needs to be proclaimed. And here in our passage, in terms of what else there to cry out, the angel goes on a little bit more detail. Looking in verse 9, he says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now you can continue reading Isaiah 40 as you see this transition towards hope happen in Isaiah. I think it's a, it's a good study for us this week. 
But what we see here is a call for the people of Jerusalem to cry out collectively the blessings of God, the glory of God. In essence, they're just saying, look, it's God. You know, it's a simple tactic, but it's also something that the New Testament writers did. They went back to the Old Testament and they looked at the prophecies and they said, look, here is this prophecy. Now here's what Jesus did as the fulfillment to this prophecy. Just look, it's God, it's not us. As we come to this Christmas season, we celebrate in similar ways. As we point people to the person of Jesus as he is born as a baby in a manger. Answering the call of God for his plan of salvation. To send the Messiah into the world that would one day become the sacrifice as God's one and only son giving his life to pay for the sins of many so that people could be in him through faith. He would be raised on the third day because death could not hold him down and he would stand victorious over the grave. Standing. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Behold, God comes with a mighty right hand. Christ, the anointed one. After a lifetime of pronouncing woes to the people of Israel, Isaiah finally has some good tidings, some good news to share for the people of Israel. And the people of Israel who hear this message, they are going to be comforted because it is God who is going to treat them gently as a shepherd who gathers the lambs into his arms. You know, you think of lambs, they're, they're cute, they're fun to watch, they're innocent. They, they, these lambs might be injured, they might be wounded, but God is going to be carrying them like the good shepherd that he is. Lambs are cute. Sheep, on the other hand, are dumb. I remember the viral video just a couple years ago with the sheep stuck in a crack and somebody, the shepherd or some person, pulls it out by the back leg and two jumps later, he just right back in the crack. But God's not a shepherd that way. As he pulls us up out of the pit, we have the assurance that we are in his arms, that he will care for us, that he is gentle. And he leads those with young gently. He brings them comfort. You know, I think about parenting, how he leads parents gently so in turn those parents would train their young ones to listen to the voice of the shepherd as well. You know, through this Christmas season, we reflect on the narrative of the birth of Jesus and how he fulfills the word of God. We see how in Isaiah, he is, Isaiah is charged with giving this message of hope, this message of comfort to those who are in exile in order to prepare a path for the Lord. We see that connection to how John the Baptist's ministry is also to prepare the way of the Lord through his own ministry, proclaiming a message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. He prepared what was to come in Christ. In similar fashion, as believers today, we are called through the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, preparing the way for Christ to return for his bride sharing the gospel message that proclaims Christ as the payment for sin, that he is the resurrection unto eternal life. And we have opportunities to spread this joy, to spread this 
message to cry out all of the time. We spread this joy not through presence, not through food, not through things of this earth, but rather done through his presence and his word, which is eternal food. It is an exciting season for sure to be singing his praises, to lift his name on high, to cry out to people, look, behold, it is God. So let's be mindful of the paths that we are preparing, lift up, lifting up our voices to say that God comes with might and that his glory will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, as we come into this season to remember what you have done through your son, as we remember all of the prophecies that, that lead up to the birth of Jesus, Lord, Lord, just give us a heart of meditation to focus in on the joy that comes with this season, to understand your glory even more than we do already, that we can dive deeper into your truths. Lord, I thank you for the word that you have given us. I thank you for the promises that we can put our hope and trust in. Lord, help us in our selfishness and our foolish pride. Help us to throw off that which can break that fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you would draw us into a deep communion this Christmas season. That we could be your witnesses and that we can proclaim your glory above all the things that the culture would want to hold up this time of year. Lord, we thank you for giving us a reason to celebrate. We thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.